The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 26, and these past few weeks in our study of the tabernacle, we've discussed the coverings that were placed over the framework of the golden boards that enclosed the structure that kept the rain and wind and other elements of the climate out of the, out of the tent. And one part that's always, I was thinking about this, one part that's always puzzled me about the tabernacle is the problem of heat with the desert sun beating down on the tent and without any windows or a door that would be left open to let in some air. What did you do with all this heat? Later, we're going to discuss the lighting mechanism. Um, it was a lampstand that had seven burning receptacles that would have produced even more heat and then also fumes from the oil that burns. And then on top of that, there's an altar of incense where hot coals are brought from the altar, the brazen altar from the outside to the inside. And then also they brought hot bread every day to put on the table of showbread. So you put all that together and you've got a lot of heat that's building up inside of the tent. Now there's an interesting passage in Isaiah about the millennial kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 4 verses 5 and 6, it says, And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from the storm and from rain. Now these are types of passages about the millennial kingdom often reflect the experience of Israel, so they would be able to relate somewhat to uh, these types of passages. And here you see the word tabernacle in the passage, and that's not actually the tabernacle in the wilderness, but it is emblematic of the presence of the Lord, and it talks about it here as a place of comfort and refreshment. Uh, but still, there, there is an allusion here to the physical in the type, and the scripture says, a shadow in the daytime from the heat. I've, I've done a lot of research over the years about the tabernacle worship system. I hope you can tell that I have. And yet, I've yet to read anyone who ever commented on this aspect of it, the problem of ventilation and the heat that's there. And you have these four layered coverings that's on top of the tabernacle. What do you do about the heat? And I thought about it, and I thought, well, maybe those, uh, maybe those coverings are insulating so that the cool of the desert night is kept somewhat uh, preserved as the priest went into the tabernacle. In addition to that, the priest didn't spend all day in the tabernacle, and I tend not to say that God did something supernatural to keep it cool inside. Of course, God could have air-conditioned the tabernacle. And he could have done that without a condenser, an evaporator, without an electric fan. Um, I, but I don't know how it works. You campers, maybe you can tell me. Uh, how do you keep cool in a tent that's all shut up? And this is essentially what you have. But those are just things to wonder about. Uh, there's something that comes to my mind. Another thing thinking about as we look at this. These don't throw us off. They don't cause us doubt because we're getting a glimpse here of what God did in this intricate design, these fascinating portrayals of Christ that are seen in multiple ways, 
God was prepared for every eventuality and all these logistical problems are no problems for God at all. But leaving those things behind, we do come to our study of the door of the tabernacle. The instructions for it are given in Exodus 26 verses 36 and 37. And thou shalt make a hanging for the door of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen wrought with needlework. And thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and their hooks shall be of gold. And thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. Well, you remember that Moses was told to build the tabernacle after a pattern that was given on Mount Sinai. And God was very specific about the details because each part of it, as we've seen, was a symbol that God was with them. The usage of tabernacle in Isaiah chapter 4 is another of the indications of the spiritual meaning of this word. It's, it's all about God's presence with his people. And we've related that many times to the New Testament passage in John 1.14, which says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And how many times have I pointed out the word dwelt there is actually the same one that's translated, same word translated as tabernacled. And then perhaps you, you also remember uh, some time ago our study of the priest garments. And the description of these garments read, And thou shalt make holy garments for glory and beauty. And so surely the, the magnificence of the tabernacle is emblematic of the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And speaking of this beauty, we are yet to enter the interior of the tabernacle. We've been concerned with all the other symbolisms, the fence on the outside, there's the brazen laver, the brazen altar, there, uh, the boards and the bars and all of that, the coverings that went over it. We've seen the symbols of, of the different materials like silver and gold and, and brass and wood, all of those things. But we are actually getting closer to the inside in which the beauty of Christ will be highly mindful of Christ's glory. Well, there has to be a way to get inside to see it. So how did one see the beautiful tapestry of the ceiling? How, how did they see the polished gold covering of the boards that reflected the shimmering light of the golden candlestick? And how did one smell the burning incense, the beautiful incense, uh, lovely smells of that? And then most of all, how could God's presence be accessed in the most brilliant place of all, where the Shekinah glory uh, the presence of God in a brilliant light could be seen. Well, there's only one way to get there, and that is a door. And so the way into the beauty of the tabernacle is a door. And without very deep contemplation, I think you know where it's going. I mean, you can already conjure up in your mind that the scriptures teach there's only one way to the glories of heaven, and that is through a door. There's only one door, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the tabernacle... A door is very close in symbolism to the gate of the fence. And we see the familiar colors of the fabric that was used in the gate. In verse number 36, there's the blue, purple, and scarlet of finely woven linen that's in the door. Uh, the posts of the fence were wood that, were, that was covered with brass. That stood for judgment. But the post of the door, are that's wood covered with gold. And that gold kept the consistency of the golden boards of the framework. Now, since the, the two are very closely related, gate and door, uh, in symbolism, and we've already discussed the gate, we're going to look at the door from a different perspective from the gate of the fence. Uh, you can 
review what was said about the gate and the other aspects and apply those to the door, that would be in sermon number eight, which was titled On the Outside Looking In. But the gate and the door were made from the same materials. Um, A door presupposes that there are walls. And if there are walls, or not walls, there aren't any walls, there's no need for a door. A wall is put up to keep people out. There is no access when there is a wall, a wall, and so you need a door. That's what lets people in. Now, the walls of the tabernacle symbolize that there is an impenetrable barrier between man and God. And the door represents access to God. And the only means of access is salvation in Jesus Christ. So the doorway of the glory to the glory of God and of eternal life is Jesus Christ. Now that's going to be our first observation uh, in this discussion that the door that opens up to God is not a physical door. Neither is it a physical gate that people would go through. But the way to access to God, the door is a person. That's number one. The door is a person. The door represents Jesus who is the only way that God will let us have fellowship with him. Fellowship is achieved by personal salvation. So God blocks off all other avenues of access by impenetrable walls that will not let people through with any other method of salvation. Nothing could be clearer than what Jesus said himself. He said in John 10:9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And in the first verse of the same chapter, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Now, where he talks about climbing up some other way, the other way is all these methods of salvation that are proposed by various false religions of the world. And though it may seem that there are as many methods of salvation as there are religions, In fact, all of them boil down to one method. All of them are just alike, and that is the works of the flesh. That the way to get to heaven is by the things that you do. And this is what Jesus describes as a man trying to climb up, trying to get up, trying to strive to reach God by his own efforts. And man has always been this way since the fall. This is what people have always done. The very first thing that Adam did when he fell, he sinned and then immediately he set out to fix that problem himself by making aprons of fig leaves. Then his son Cain was born and he was born with the same problem, the same sinful nature and his inclination was to bring God a sacrifice of the fruits of his own labor. Soon or in the, in the course of time, God destroyed the wicked world's population with the flood. And then right after the flood, we find the renewed population on the plains of Shinar building a tower that they hoped would reach up to God. And it wasn't that they thought that they could construct something that was actually high enough to reach into heaven. It's not a physical thing they were trying to do. But by their efforts in making an altar and constructing their own God, what they made with their hands, they tried by the God that they chose to be saved. And so they said, let us make a name for ourselves. And that was just their God being an extension of them, not that they are the offspring of God. And I would say the world hasn't changed in that opinion. We are living in what I think we can call Tower of Babel days, where everyone constructs their own truth. Everyone claims that 
what their, their truth is valid when there's nothing to substantiate it but their own puny minds. I heard a TV character several months ago. He had a line. One of his lines in the, on the show was, The only truth there is, is truth you make. You construct the truth in whatever way you choose. Now, he said that. His line wasn't challenged by anyone else on the show. And there I was, sitting in my chair with my mouth open. I'm constructing these arguments in my head for such a stupid statement. And they, on the show, they just accepted that as if that's, the, that's wisdom. I mean, now you said something profound. And that was received without argument. And that is precisely what Jesus meant when he spoke of the thief who tries to climb up some other way. He doesn't take the door that leads to the place that he wants to go. And so he unlawfully intrudes. Jesus said that the way to God and salvation is inextricably connected to him. He hangs on the pillars of the walls. And you are not going to get to God any other way than being reconciled to him. Now, let, let me speak to you just a moment about the pillars. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, the pillars that support the door. Verse number 37. And thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and their hooks shall be of gold, and thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. Now, next we have a picture of the door. And here you can see there are five pillars that are the support for this curtain that hangs across it. So what is it that we can learn from these pillars? Well, first we learn that Christ is the pillar of our faith. Why do you have pillars in a building? Well, pillars are for support. Pillars hold up the building. Some of you may live in a house that's built on a crawl space. And if you crawl up under the house, you'll see that there are some short pillars that are spaced out along the length of the house. And there's a beam that goes across those pillars in the floor joists, cross that beam at a 90-degree angle, and that all rests on these pillars. Uh, in a basement house, the pillars are much easier seen because you have long pillars that reach from the basement floor up to the ceiling above it, and uh, that is the support for the floor above. Now, and without getting into a lesson from Architectural Digest, uh, we can learn the importance of pillars and supports from what happened at the Twin Towers on 9-11. Uh, I'm just kind of throwing this one in for extra credit. Uh, but the airplanes that hit the World Trade Center were chosen because they were loaded with fuel for long flights. Uh, They're supposed to travel a long way and the, the guys that were flying these planes wanted to strike the buildings and have plenty of fuel to, to burn up and, and cause problems there. So they struck the buildings, and this is all determined later, uh, uh, looking at uh, how this took place. But they struck the buildings at just the right height to produce an inferno that the fire would weaken the steel in the, in the walls and weaken the... Uh, we get all of that, and then it would, the weight would become too much for the pillars that supported the floors above. And then when those gave way, the weight of the collapsing floors coming down would bring the whole building down. So this was a, a calculated strike at just the right height, not too high, because then there wouldn't be enough weight to collapse the building, and not too low, because the jetliners couldn't fly between New York buildings to hit the lower floors. So the point or the object of the strike was to take down the building by finally just getting to the pillar supports, putting too much weight on the, on the pillars, and then the building couldn't stand. Now, these 
architectural principles are ancient. These go all the way back to almost to the very beginning, and it's seen in the construction of all buildings. Now, another example of this we can see in the uh, in the Bible when Samson asked a youth to guide him to the pillars that were the main supports for the temple of Dagon. So Samson went, he was placed between those two support pillars, and with supernatural strength, he pulled and he pushed on those, and when they broke, the whole building came down. Now the scriptures give us such imagery, uh, these kinds of principles, to teach us how critical it is to have support for our faith. Without the support, we don't have anything to stand on, and so our faith fails. So what is the faith that saves? It's the faith that rests on a proper foundation, on a support that can't be moved. Jesus' example of this is in Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gave this illustration of a, of a house that's built on a firm foundation that's dug down deep. It's down on solid ground so that it can withstand the winds and the floods. Then also listen to Paul's metaphor of foundational support in 1 Corinthians 3. In verse number 9, he says, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation is Jesus Christ. Faith by itself will not withstand anything. Faith has to rest on something. Faith must have an object that it's, is its pillar of support. And so faith for the sake of faith has no value. And yet we hear many people who believe that faith by itself is valuable. It's like I spoke this morning. You have people who say, well, you just got to have faith. Just have faith, man. Just have faith. You got to believe. And you have to ask, believe what? Believe what? what what's faith? going to do for you? Well, faith will work, they say, just because faith works. That's not faith. That's fatalism. Faith by itself is not determinative. Now, sometimes our belief in uh, God's predestination is called fatalism. Only the extremely ignorant would call that fatalism because they don't understand predestination or fatalism. Fatalism has no means of determination. Predestination does. It rests on the infallible, sovereign work of God. It's deliberate. It has a purpose. It's a perfectly determined outcome. But faith for itself, just for itself, is worthless because faith is not determinative. It's the object of the faith that has the power to make faith effectual. So even this statement, if somebody says, well, you've got to have faith in God. And if you have faith in God, you'll be saved. That statement by itself is problematic. Now, it's a nice statement, it's a good sentiment, but unless you understand what the Bible means by saving faith, then it's not any good. Saving faith has to be based in the objective truth of Jesus Christ going to the cross, shedding his blood, and then applying the benefits of his death to your personal account of sin. He justifies in that act. It's a concrete act, no pun intended. Uh, it's, it's foundational. That is the foundation upon which faith must rest. Now, most people who say that they have faith, even those who say they have faith in God, most don't connect it to the work of Christ. 
And so their faith is as worthless as a heathen's because it has that fatal flaw. The only saving faith that the Bible knows is faith that is anchored in Jesus Christ. Now listen to this tabernacle imagery in Hebrews chapter 6. In verse 17, wherein God willingly, more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil." Whither the forerunner for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now there we see that this hope, this hope of eternal life in heaven, is secured by the anchor of the soul. That is the support beam of Jesus Christ who went behind the veil, symbolically going behind the veil with his blood, with a once-for-all sacrifice, and he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. Hope is one of those joists that runs across the beam of faith, resting on the foundational pillars. So we have hope because faith has been correctly placed in the object, and that is Jesus Christ. Now to see the remarkable consistency of Scripture in in ways that you might not imagine, I want us to consider this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. We've read it so many times, you can quote it back to me forwards and backwards, but I want you to consider uh, what we're going to say here, if you've heard it before in this context. Can you imagine that Isaiah 9, verse 6, finds its expression in the five pillars of the door of the tabernacle? Recognize it, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Our faith rests on five aspects, five pillars of Christ's character that are found in this passage. Now the first you see, he is wonderful. In a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ to Manoah, the father of Samson, Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, and that angel of the Lord is that pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He asked the angel of the Lord for his name. This is the reply. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou me after, uh, ask thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? Secret is translated from the same word as wonderful in Isaiah chapter 9. And that word respects the glory of God. So the angel, and this is one of the ways that we know that it's a pre incarnate appearance of Christ, this angel of the Lord said, I In effect, he says, I am the glory of God. And so our faith rests upon the one who is the visible manifestation of God. He is the image of God. The image of God is displayed in human form. And as we discussed that, that's a miracle beyond our comprehension. So wooden pillars overlaid with gold, that's just a bare semblance of glory that's been robed in humanity. It's glory unseen until the flesh is peeled back as in the transfiguration. And it's glory that is unseen like the inside of the tabernacle that's not seen until you go through the door. It's the Shekinah glory atop the Ark of the Covenant that is unseen until the veil of flesh is pushed away. He is wonderful. I am 
the glory of God is what that passage means. Secondly, the second pillar is he is counselor. Some combine wonderful and counselor to make it wonderful counselor. That's okay because it's true. He is superlative. He's glorious in his counsel. His counsel is above all others so that there is no one who counsels him. In Isaiah 40 verse 13, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him. Now there, the spirit of the Lord actually means the spirit of Christ. The spirit proceeds from Christ. So who instructed him? Who instructed him in the creation of the world? Or as God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, of course, there are some who presume to instruct God. They don't believe that God acts until they act. When they decide, then God will act according to their decision. And thus, it is with their faith. They believe that God saves them based upon their foreseen faith. God saw what they would do, and then God elected them to salvation. But that's purely farcical according to God's word. Who is Christ's counselor? Who instructs him when to act? Our faith is anchored on a pillar that stands on its own. It is the support. It doesn't need support. Thirdly, the third pillar is that he is mighty God. Christ incarnate is no less God than he was as a spirit. Now, though he divested himself of glory and stepped down to go to the death of the cross, in none of that time was he anything other less, was not less than God. He's always the full manifestation, has the full power of God. His equality with the Father is well established in the scripture. He and his Father are one. And his subordination to the death of the cross to secure redemption, that's purely a voluntary act. He gave up no authority. He said all authority was granted to him. Paul wrote that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him, he said, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we can't look at Jesus as Pilate did. We can't look at him as the chief priests and the Pharisees did. We can't even look at him as Peter did. You remember when uh, Jesus was arrested in the garden... When Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, Jesus said, Don't you think that I could just ask my father and he would send me twelve legions of angels? Peter, I don't need you to defend me. Who defends him? He is the mighty God. They arrested him in the garden and tried him and crucified him. Why did they do it? Well, Peter learned a great lesson later when he preached that sermon on Pentecost. Acts 2 verse 23, Peter says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So the mighty God, Jesus Christ, said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. So can faith be supported by any greater pillar than the mighty God? That's the third pillar, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Fourthly, in Isaiah 9 verse 6, we see the pillar that he is, an, he is the everlasting father. Father is not normally applied to the second person, the Godhead. But Isaiah 9 verse 6 is a Trinitarian declaration of the sharing in the, of the work of the Godhead. And we see that in other examples such as the creation. Uh, there you read about who, who was it? Which person the Godhead 
created this world? Well, you find in some places it's the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's God the Father, and other times it's the Lord Jesus Christ who created the world. So who did it? Well, that's a Trinitarian declaration. All of them are involved in that. All of the Godhead is responsible. Well, the Jews in the New Testament opposed Christ on these grounds that he claimed authority, equality with the Father. Jesus argued for that when he cited his right to the name Lord. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now that's a very important text because Jesus used it to say that he was greater than David. He said that he would sit on David's throne. And so the term father has this implication of being the one who reigns forever. He's not an earthly king whose power ceases upon death and then another king comes along to assume the authority. No, he is the king who rules his people forever. And that's one of the sureties of everlasting salvation. There is not going to be another administration that comes along and changes all the laws. He is the everlasting Father. And that also assures us that he is the eternal God from before the creation until eternity everlasting. He is eternally self-existent. What pillar for our faith is needed but that? And yet that's only one of five. And then the fifth pillar... He is the Prince of Peace. He reconciles us to God so that we have peace with God. His redemption ends the hostility that keeps us apart. Now that's wonderful news for our confidence that Christ is, in fact, the right approach to God. Now I'd like you to take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and here is a Discussion of peace with God made exclusively through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, and beginning in verse number 12. Ephesians 2, verse number 12. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Through him we have access to the Father. What does that access make you think of? Doesn't that speak of a door? How do we get through to the Father? How do we achieve peace with him? We have access through the door. Jesus said, I am the door. And he said, no one comes in but by me. So our faith rests upon the pillar of peace. 
the door of the tabernacle hangs on the pillar of peace. And no one goes inside the tabernacle unless they have peace with God. This is termed wonderful peace. We sang about that just a minute ago. Wonderful peace. And the Isaiah passage might allude to that, and, it's, and it certainly is true. But the passage actually tends more towards another peace, and that is the peace that Jesus Christ will bring to this earth. In Revelation 1 verse 5, it says that he is the prince of the kings of the earth. And that's a very interesting assessment of his supreme status because there are many kings on the earth, but this king is the prince among all other kings. In other words, all kings receive their power and authority from him. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. The psalmist wrote in the 75th Psalm, For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Now I wonder if I could bend your ear with something for just a minute. I believe that we have a responsibility as Americans to do our best to uphold decency and godliness and to vote for candidates that more incline towards morality and upholding principles of God's word. And I ask you, well, how many candidates are there out there that we have confidence in to do that? Well, we don't have any. And so we go to the polls knowing that we're voting for the lesser of evils. And even that might not be correct because we have no idea of all the evil that's in their hearts. Maybe there's more than we actually know. So I'm thinking about this and I remember uh, something that Gary said in the Romans class um, a few weeks ago. It was around the time that the Mueller report came out and we were studying in Romans about the, the glory of the coming kingdom and how that we really shouldn't be too bent out of shape about what goes on because Christ is going to make all things right. So as we were discussing that, Gary said that he was disturbed about that report and the handling of it. But then he said, Romans 8 helped calm him down. Now that's a paraphrase of what he said. Uh, God works through means, for sure, and we're to vote for at least, I think, a semblance of decency if we can. Now, I, I don't know what happened with Trump in the last election. I don't trust anybody to tell the truth of it. I don't trust the president to tell the truth. I don't trust the news media to tell the truth of it. I certainly don't trust the Democrats to tell the truth. But I do know this, that as bitter as some people were about the last election, Trump did not get into power without God. And I don't mean that he leaned on God, and I don't mean that he prayed to God, and I don't think that he was favored by God or anything like it. What I mean is that God will work it out for his divine purposes, even if that purpose is to bring this country to its knees and destroy it. And I would say that about Hillary, too, if she'd been elected. Now, I think the path to destruction in her case would have been straighter and a steeper plunge. And uh, about 3,000 that are trying to get on this next ticket, among them, there's not one of them that's worth the energy to spit on them, but neither is any one of them going to be elected without God. One of them may be, but not without God. And I don't really need to worry about that because my faith is in the one who sets up presidents and kicks them out and he'll have his way. And if he determines to bring us down, he'll bring us down and we won't stop it. 
Now, I do know that one day he's going to bury all kings and all will bow to him either willingly or by force. Well, that brings me to the final observation about these pillars. Uh, Each of the boards of the tabernacle, uh, the whole framework, was set down in sockets of silver. You remember that? The sockets of silver. The foundation of the boards was silver. Silver stands for redemption. So you go all around the tabernacle, you look under the boards, and there is silver. But then you look at the last verse of our text in Exodus 26, 37. The last phrase is, And thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. Around the entire tabernacle is a foundation of silver, but these pillars stand on brass. Brass stands for judgment. We learned that about the fence. We learned of it about the brazen altar. And what is the symbolism of it? Well, the way to God rests upon the judgment of our sins at the cross. The way to the pillars that holds up the door rests on judgment. Now, when, you're, when you place your faith in Christ when you're saved, that faith delivers you from the wrath of God. That's what salvation is, being delivered from the wrath of God. I mean, what else would you be saved from? It must be wrath. So you're saved from hell, from God's punishment, through his wrath against sin. And so our faith must stand on something. Faith doesn't just hang out there in the air, because if it did, it would surely fall, just as a house that's built on the sand. So faith must have this firm foundation. And the foundation of our faith, friends, is Jesus Christ. He is the door through which we enter fellowship with God. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he has said to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled? That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, for the truth of the tabernacle, talking about the door, Jesus Christ, the only way that we have access to you. We must come through your son who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins to pay the the penalty of all of our sins and to take the wrath of God for us. And we thank you, Lord, for that, for what Jesus did for us in shedding his blood on the cross. Bless our people, Lord. Thank you for the lesson tonight. In Jesus' Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.